Hi, hello. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, not alongside me, but on the line with me today and forevermore, Michael Cox, the tactics writer for The Athletic. How are you getting on, Michael? Hi, very well, thank you, Ali. It's a sad end to a famous series of articles about squad numbers. The last article that you've written of the series focuses on novelty numbers. Will you be sad to wave goodbye to what was a great idea, beautifully executed, or uh, or will you be happy to see the back of it, so to speak? That's very kind. No, it's been really enjoyable. It's, you know, I think shirt numbers is either one of those things where you really care about it or you couldn't care less. Either it's, you know, some people think it's a mere administrative procedure and others of us, you know, think that there's a, a great history and a great tradition to be adhered to so no it's been it's been really fun and it seems to have gone down well amongst uh, the readers well if you've noticed a slight dip in numbers over the last week that'll be because uh, myself and my colleague george have been writing league one and league two teams of the year last week so it's possible you saw a bit of a dip in numbers as we did steal something of a, a large chunk of the the market there in terms of readers i'm, I'm assuming anyway um uh, michael what are we talking about on this week's episode of the zonal marking pod well we're going to be talking about Norwich City uh, we've spoken a lot about the the top teams in the Premier League this year but I think really the great strength of the league has been the fact that there's been such quality towards the bottom and uh, I think that's you know most evident when you look at Norwich who obviously as we speak are in 20th position but whenever I see them clearly have some brilliant players tactically they're interesting they try and impose themselves on games so I thought it'd be a great opportunity to look at uh, yeah one of the teams at the uh, the bottom end of the league. Only one person could have joined us on this podcast. Delighted to have Michael Bailey on the line, the athletic writer for Norwich City. And Michael, another Michael on the pod and a, a zonal marking debut. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Ali. I, I'm interested to know Michael Bailey this is. I, I shall differentiate between you by calling Michael Cox Coxie. So apologies if that's too familiar for some of the listeners, but it is quite an important separator, I think, as, as we go back and forth. Uh, but Michael Bailey, you've been covering Norwich uh, for a long time now. And I'm interested to know, you know, we're talking about a team with 21 points from 29 Premier League games, six points off safety and something of a large goal difference deficit. And yet it, it, it strikes me and tell me if I'm wrong, that it's probably quite a pleasant club to to cover. The, the club seems to be, despite poor on res, on pitch results this season, to be in a, quite a good place. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair enough. I mean, I look at some of my athletic colleagues and, and see, all, you know, sort of all sort of um, ructions going on and, and what have you. And it does seem quite stable. I think the since they got uh, Stuart Weber in as sporting director and kind of rebuilt things once Daniel Farker was appointed, everything seems to have been quite stable and in terms of them having a really clear idea of what they wanted things to look like. And they're very transparent and honest and, and open and as a leadership, which kind of meant that regardless of what was happening this year Daniel Farker wasn't going to go anywhere nothing was really going to happen in the boardroom and they weren't going to try and upset the playing group so that kind of takes away any major major kind of instability that you get around a football club and um, I think uh, they are a lot of fun to to cover that they're, they're the club I grew up watching as well so that's that's quite nice um, sometimes and yeah, I, I, it, there's there's maybe one or two moments where the fans have been a little bit um, perplexed by by some decisions in terms of um, you know maybe not spending enough money or I think the, the membership scheme kicked off in the summer, which you know is it probably says it all that was the biggest thing that really got everyone's goat up. So I think uh, they it is a lovely place as well, and sometimes that can be a bit of an issue. I think one of the most successful period they've had in the last twenty years was when they were actually trying to be a little bit more nasty under uh, under David McNally and and, and uh, Paul Paul Lambert and um I think the fans quite enjoyed that as well but um you know they they've managed to do both in the last year or so so that's been quite good yeah previous to to this season in in attaining premier league status it was a fantastic success story over a, 
a few years. And, and Stuart Webber, the sporting director, is the name that I'm sure will crop up uh, on this podcast. More more references than, than your average sporting director because of his importance in its rise. But we are going to talk about Daniel Farker, of course, and uh, the tactics that he implements. A style of play that's been described as, as brave, as entertaining, and also probably as naive uh, by different people over the course of this season. Let's take things back, Michael, to the state Norwich were in when Daniel Fark was appointed in May 2017. What did he walk into? He walked into a position where Stuart Webber had been in the building for a, a month or so. I think he arrived at the start of the April. Norwich were um, mid-table-ish in, in, or probably slightly higher in the championship, but they weren't in any danger of going up. They'd just sacked Alec Neal and Alan Irving was in temporary charge. Um, Stuart Webber, there were, I think there were seven um, out-of-contract players coming coming up. Um, and some experienced players as well. Stephen Whitaker, John Ruddy, Sebastian Bassong, Ryan Bennett. So, you know, some pretty decent quality players as, as well. And um, they all got released. I don't think there was any real likelihood that they were going to keep them on. Um, it was a slightly ageing squad in some places. It had been around the block a bit. Um, and obviously been in the Premier League the season before. So Norwich were about to embark on their second season and final season of parachute payments, um, which basically they'd already spent and probably overspent. So they were going to have to trim the wage bill, sell players for a lot of money. And so they needed to buy, build that value into the squad. There was going to be a huge amount of transition. Um, and that probably came with the, the club having to accept that having yo-yoed and been in the Premier League or fighting for a promotion for about seven or eight years that that was going to end and there would have to be a rebuild that would probably involve being in the championship for for more than one or two seasons. Um, And so Daniel Farker was going to have to manage all that um, along with trying to make sure that the team was um, at least able to stay in the championship, to be brutally honest, or or to do something that um, meant that they kept the supporters on side, which I think was was a really important issue. So it was... um, yeah, it was a big. It was a. It was probably. It was a big job that he walked into at a big, a big club, especially in the championship. And the first big, major decision of Stuart Webber's reign as sporting director was to hire Daniel Farker. He'd previously been in the same role with Huddersfield Town and had overseen their promotion. Stuart Webber during that time he'd recruited. David Wagner as Huddersfield manager, a great friend of of Jurgen Klopp and formerly uh, working at Dortmund. And Farker gets uh, sort of predictable treatment when he comes over. A lot of links to Klopp, a lot of links to Wagner because of Weber's experience with Wagner at Huddersfield. He had worked with the Dortmund second team, the reserve team, but actually I think I'm right in saying quite limited experience of Klopp himself. That that bit was slightly overplayed. Well, yeah, he hadn't met him. <laughs> he hadn't met him <laughs> until they were um, alongside each other in the dugouts. Uh, at Whereas Anfield. Wagner was <laughs> best man at his wedding. Well, exactly. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they the, the the obviously the similarities between where Wagner and and Farker both came from was because they came from the same job and they were appointed by the same same bloke. And I think it was quite easy and, and lazy just to assume that Norwich were trying to copy what had happened at Huddersfield. I mean, what they'd done is, you know, appointed the person who'd masterminded that and then and then through a huge amount of work, um, it just so happened that, you know, Stuart Webber appointed a person from the same club, which I think he said, he certainly said to me in the past that he wished Daniel Farker had come from a different club. It just so happened that he was at, <laughs> it was at Dortmund too. Um, so yeah, I think they've, they've been, it's very interesting though, because we spoke to, we spoke to Daniel before um, the game against Liverpool at Carrow Road in February. And he was a, a lot more effusive and a lot more, spoke a lot more about Jurgen Klopp. So um, I, I, I've not had the chance to speak to Daniel, but I wonder if, you know, since since they've shared a division and, and been in the same kind of orbit, I, want, I wonder if he's spoken a lot more to Jurgen and, and they've maybe shared a few more conversations because they obviously there will be a lot they would have in common and a lot they would have the chance to speak to. But certainly before the season kicked off, they they hadn't they hadn't even met, which which made it quite amusing when lots of people were trying to uh, assume that there was a huge connection there. I think Thomas Tuchel was uh, was the boss at Dortmund during uh, Farkas' 18 months there. So uh, I think that's where the, the greater connection is. It's not an easy first season in charge for Farker for a lot of 
reasons that you mentioned about what the club was was going through, uh, I suppose in a financial sense off the field, a lot of cost cutting. Uh, they finished 14th in the championship and then we get to the start of last season, which didn't actually start particularly well. As you mentioned, wage bill having to be slashed. Uh, players like James Madison had left for, for big money. But it was quite interesting, Michael, that just despite that 14th placed finish and despite a, not a great start to last season, Weber was very, very supportive of Farker and where there might have been some murmurings about his future, about a potential sacking, those were shut down fairly quickly early on last campaign. Yeah, I think Norwich won one of their first five games. They got hammered 3-0 at home to Leeds, which I think everyone left Carrow Road because they, they, Norwich had headed into that season thinking, okay, you've had your transition year, let's see what you can do this year. But by the same token, you know, they'd, they'd sold Josh Murphy and and James Madison for a lot of money and Alex Pritchard had gone the previous summer and, you know, that, that was a huge amount of their goals. It felt like if they hadn't have got their recruitment right in that summer, they could just as easily found themselves in a in a huge relegation battle because they wouldn't have you know had the the firepower that they needed. Um, so they really struggled. They before the before the August um, international break they went to Ipswich. Some fans um, were you know probably ready to start piling on a lot of pressure on Daniel if they lost that game, especially as they hadn't lost to Ipswich, obviously arch rivals in in about a decade. So it's all the added uh, added um, sort of um, psychology around that. Um, and they they managed to to draw it, and then I think I think Stuart Weber did make the point that you know it doesn't really matter. Daniel's not going anywhere, so you know just just dig in, everyone. Sorry, and um, that's the sort of openness they, that the fans have kind of got used to. And obviously, then it depends what happens on the pitch. There was a bit of pressure on Middlesbrough vis- Middlesbrough's visit to Carrow Road after that. Um, it wasn't a particularly great game, but Norwich managed to scrape all. A one 0 win. I think it was a deflected Timo Pukki shot. I think one remarkable thing is up until that point, Timo Pukki had kind of been earmarked to play behind Jordan Rhodes, who was on loan from Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Jordan got a little, well, he might have got a little injury. It might have been a selection um, selection alteration. But uh, Timo Pukki was given the role up top on his own in in that game against Middlesbrough. Scored, and then everything just caught fire. Norwich found they had a striker who was, you know. In, within a few weeks proving he was uh, cut above championship level and that fired it just became such a huge amount of momentum and all the hunger that the players had it, it just fueled them into this run and, and no one could stop them they they were an irresistible force in terms of how they were playing it felt like a lot of the championship sides didn't really have the tactical uh, abilities to to counter it um and and Norwich kind of steamrolled the division. It was just remarkable from where they were in the first five games. It's, you know, it, for something to click that that suddenly, you, you just don't see that so often. You see it, you see teams go into that maybe at the start of the season, having done a lot of work in pre-season. But I have to say the first five games, you could see they'd improved, but to think that they'd go and win the division just felt a mile off it. They lost three of their first five. And from that point, uh, only lost three of the subsequent 41 games en route to uh, a title win that was made even more impressive by the strength of certainly Sheffield United and Leeds United, who had you know a high-profile blow-up towards the end of the season and, and in the playoff semi-final against Derby County, but who were a, a worthy ch- uh, sort of title rival for, for the majority of the season. Uh, Michael, over to you, uh, Coxie, I should say. Uh, Norwich's promotion campaign in the championship last season at what point did you take note of this and start digging a little bit deeper into perhaps their style and the tactics that as other Michael said uh, really helped them to fly towards the top of the table and, and that the other championship teams really struggled to handle they almost came from nowhere in terms of going from you know a mid-table side to a promotion hopeful to just nailed on title winners and I must say it took me a while before I you know really grasped what a good side they were and, and when I did watch their games my impression of them really was just tactically they play like a Premier League side. I mean, uh, as you say, the quality in the championship in, in the last few years has been really high. But I do think there's some exceptions. And, you know, some teams like like the Cardiff side, they got promoted under Neil Warnock, where they did feel like, you know, a championship, a very good championship side. Norwich were a little bit different. They, they felt like they would adjust to the Premier League really quickly. And, the you know, the two players I took notice of when I first saw them were 
uh, the two fullbacks, Aaron's and, and Lewis, who obviously both young guys. Um, I think their first full season for both of them, but immediately just looked like they had the technical quality and, and the speed and the tactical intelligence to adjust to the Premier League. And, you know, when you look back at the side that they use for the championship, it's remarkable really how similar it is in terms of shape and in terms of personnel to the side that has, you know, acquitted themselves generally quite well in the Premier League, you know, albeit not always picked up the results. Michael, there's a lot discussed always with promoted sides to the Premier League from the Championship. The influx of of TV revenue means that clubs have a lot more flexibility, shall we say, in the transfer market, should they want it. But the the big question often comes uh, about surrounding the the topic of how much money should you spend and how much you should change a a winning team ultimately. Now Norwich decided not to change very much and I wonder if you could tell us if that was a a deliberate strategy not really to recruit too many new signings, new faces through the door in the summer as they approach the Premier League season. Yeah, it's a, a really interesting question. I think I think it's a it's a it's a mix of it all really. I think Norwich's recruitment was so good in the previous season. And they became a Premier League club. And I, I genuinely think they they just found it really hard to get the same kind of value. Um, I, I think they were they were trying to recruit players. And you know, maybe understandably, the teams they were speaking to were saying, uh, well, yeah, you've, you're going to get 100 million quid, aren't you? So we want this much. And Norwich are going, well, no, but we haven't got that. So I think there was a there was this this um, you know expectation of what they could spend, which they weren't prepared to spend. I think um, I mean you look at all the Premier League t- clubs and you see that the money they get in terms of TV revenue, but you have to appreciate that all these clubs also have owners who are putting in money, or they're prepared to um, uh, loan back the money they're going to get from other sources or other transfers to use it up front. Um, and Norwich haven't they they've done a little bit of that but not a lot and certainly not to the levels of other of other clubs say you know Sheffield United I think managed to do that in in January obviously being in a good position to be able to do that um so Norwich didn't really have a lot of money to spend because a lot of their recruitment from the previous season ended up costing more because they went up they ended up having to spend 20 million quid on bonuses and what have you because they'd got promoted um they gave everyone a new contract pretty much so again um and I think it was a just to see how Stuart Weber does things is he's very keen on investment he's very keen on if you achieve something then you need to see something as a lasting legacy of that and a lasting legacy of Norwich going up wasn't going to be 20 million quid on a striker um because you don't know how they're going to perform it's it's almost like that's 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 the bigger risk so they spent a lot of money on the training ground which hadn't been touched in about 20 years they had managed to get 5 million quid from supporters the previous summer basically and they basically paid that back and said right we've got the money so we'll we'll buy that i mean it's not a lot of money um, essentially but there are lots of little things that added up Um, and when you're only really getting 40 or 50 million quid in that initial um you know influx of money you've got to wait until you know later in the year for the rest of it and you haven't got an owner who's going to suddenly go well here's another 50 million quid and you're having to up your bank overdraft to 30 million to whichever to try and supplement stuff then I think that they were kind of the factors that made it quite difficult I think they also and Stuart Webber has said this they they didn't get it right I mean they brought in four or five players and they basically weren't the right ones um Patrick Roberts his loan ended um Ralph Farman who was backup goalkeeper his loan ended in February um, Abraham Amadou, who was supposed to be a really exciting key arrival as a defensive midfielder, just didn't work because Daniel Farker didn't trust him as a midfielder. And I know Norwich had a lot of issues at centre back, but you know he, he he only really considered him as a centre back, which which didn't work. And and that was kind of a key a key area needed Norwich needed to strengthen, and and basically it didn't work, so they didn't. Only in the last few weeks of the season did we start to see Josip Drumic have some sort of impact and he was a free agent in the summer. So, you know, they didn't, they couldn't do a lot of business. They didn't do a lot of business and the business that they did do didn't really have as big an impact as they needed. They also put a lot of faith into the squad that they had. You know, champions in the championship tend to do well when they get promoted. They tend not to get relegated, but that's 
probably because those teams then invest more on the team that wins the championship and therefore they're in a sort of a, it's a it's a higher base to then strengthen it, it's not that just that title winning team is then good enough to stay up um so i think norwich kind of fell short a little bit there and they obviously wanted the players um as a group to really kick on um and in this instance it's something they haven't been able to do um well enough to to get to make sure they were higher up the table. I think some players have, have shown real promise in the second half of the season, but it's it's taken too long for others. Michael, they were part of the first game of the Premier League season. A trip to Anfield was, I think it's fair to say, not the easiest start. Something of a baptism of fire. They were four nil down at half time. Uh, the game finished four one, but there was quite a lot more to it than that. And this is where what I referenced at the top of the show, this this battle between bravery and naivety sort of comes to the fore pretty early on. How, how What did you make of, of that game? Yeah, to be honest, I thought it was a decent first game for Norwich. I mean, I know it was obviously a very intimidating trip away to the European champions, but I just thought it was, it was almost like a kind of uh, a free pass. You know, they didn't expect to get anything from the game. Okay, in the end, it was a heavy defeat, but you look at the XG and it wasn't, uh, by any means uh, a resounding Liverpool win in terms of the chances created. I think that was reflected by what everyone saw. I thought some of the uh, the play from the fullbacks was excellent. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, I thought, was given one of the most difficult games he's had all season. And I think with a late goal as well, probably set Norwich up for, you know, just taking some positives out of that fixture. Um, and then, of course, the next week there was the... The home win against Newcastle and it felt like that was actually quite a good opening two games. One game to kind of, you know, test your level and see what, you, what you're going to up. Uh, sorry, test your level and see what you're going to be up against in the Premier League. And then a, another game really to get points on the board and, and you know, start your, your quest for survival. So I thought right from the outset, Norwich showed that they had, you know, the technical quality going forward, the tactical quality uh, in midfield positions. OK, defensively, they were found wanting a little bit and I think that has been their problem throughout much of the campaign but overall I thought it was a decent start to the campaign for them. Let's get into to some of the individual players and their roles within this team. Uh, starting at the back, Tim Krull who uh, one of the few players in this squad with uh, Premier League experience. Uh, Michael Cox, how good do you think Krull has been this season? How do you rate him as a Premier League goalkeeper? I think he's done pretty well, actually. I mean, he's one of the players, of course, who has lots of Premier League experience. There aren't too many of those uh, in this Norwich side. You never really know how goalkeepers are going to cope when they've been away from the Premier League for a couple of years. But, you know, I was going through my notes for, for research for this and I just found, you know, time after time I'd noted down he'd made a great save. There's one from Andreas Christensen against Chelsea, another one from Anthony Martial. He made a really good double save from Salah and and uh, Naby Keita in the recent 1-0 defeat. Okay, the Keita one probably he should have scored, but nevertheless, Krull was up very quickly. So, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes we can talk about experience a little bit too much, but, uh, you know, from what a few Norwich players have said, he seems to be a very popular character in the dressing room as well as being a pretty good shot stopper so yeah I think he's been uh, probably one of the better goalkeepers in the Premier League this year. It's been a, a difficult campaign in terms of injuries uh, Michael and especially uh, when it comes to the defensive line they've really had to chop and change. Uh, one player who is very highly rated which I wanted to ask you about is Ben Godfrey. Now Godfrey is sometimes thought to have come through the youth system of at Norwich doesn't quite work that he's uh, he actually played half a season, age 17, for York City before Norwich picked him up. But they did show great vision to pick him up very early uh, back in January 2016. Uh, he's a very highly rated player. How good do you think he is, uh, Michael? And tell us a bit about him as a defender, what sort of profile he has. Yeah, yeah. He joined Norwich as an 18-year-old, so he's not he's not really one of their own. But um, he, um, he has huge potential to go as, as high as he wants to. I, I genuinely think that. I think he's played a lot of um, time as a holding midfielder. He spent an entire season um, with Shrewsbury there in in League uh, League One, I think it was. Um, he gets very annoyed when I ask him whether he uh, which about that or, or uh, playing at centre back. But I think Daniel Farker has made a, a real clear intent to play him at centre back and, and believes that's where he'll be strongest. I think he his use of the ball is fantastic. And I think we saw that in the goal that was uh, that ended up um, with Jamal Lewis um, scoring that um, Norwich beat Leicester last time on Carrow Road. He switches the 
play brilliantly. I think he can really drive um, forward with the ball as well. Um, he's, he's strong. I think the only weakness that I think we've seen um, quite regularly at this level, and again, that's probably understandable given his rise has been meet, uh, has been so fast. Definitely not meteoric. That's definitely not what I was going to say. Um, is uh, <laughs> is, um, um, is is his positioning in in sort of in in small spaces? Um, you know, crosses in from the from the uh, byline and and that sort of being beaten half a yard by a striker who knows how to get that extra bit of space or, or move off him. I think that they're the times when he's, it's just, a, it hasn't done the job, I think consistently enough um, or, you know, maybe there's still a bit of learning and coaching to be done there. Um, but I think given he's, I think he's still only 21, I think we might be 22 now. Um, 22 now captained England under 21s this season. Um, he's a real leader. He's got a really strong personality. I like him a lot. He's 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 fiery. I wouldn't want to mess with him. And um, I think I just you can you can see him really kicking on. And I think I mean obviously we've got absolutely no idea what's going to happen with Norwich next season. But I, I would I would love to, him to spend next season at Norwich in the Premier League because I think we'll as as he's he's caught the eye this year but i just think there's there's another level and another load of experience and and learning that he can just look so much more comfortable but in a team where he will still play regularly and be really important i think that probably goes for a handful of norwich's young players i think but certainly certainly i think ben has 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 real potential and michael cox two players that really caught the eye last season and have quite crucial roles as as fullbacks with a lot of responsibility uh, in this Norwich Daniel Farker system. Uh, what have you made of those two young fullbacks, Max Ahrens and, and Jamal Lewis? Yeah, I think there's been a few games where they've been given a, a real defensive test. Um, and I think sometimes they've They've shown the fact that they, you know, aren't accustomed to playing against the type of players you get in the Premier League. But I think there's been far more positives. I mean, going forward, both are excellent on the ball. The goal in particular, you know, the winner against Leicester, it's the obvious one to highlight. But I mean, I remember once uh, hearing Johan Cruyff say that his favourite type of goal in football was when one fullback crosses the ball and the other's there to finish. Well, that was a great example of it. And not just any finish, but that kind of swerving outside of the foot half volley into the far corner was, you know, I think up there with one of the goals of the season. So, yeah, they've been great to watch. And I think it's uh, yeah, it's one of those areas where you can say, OK, sometimes Norwich have lost the ball in dangerous positions and the fullbacks have been you know, high up the pitch and, and the centre-backs have been exposed. But I think they've been so crucial to the way that they've played going forward. The likes of Cantwell and Buendia, who I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, have been so effective being able to drift inside and into you know positions between the lines you can only do that when the fullbacks are overlapping and the fact that they're always you know on the touch lines always on the bike and always providing an option out wide is it's just been crucial in the way the whole side is played can imagine uh, michael bailey that caro road's been packed with scouts for a while now watching well, aaron's lewis and, and godfrey too uh, a lot up in the air at the moment with football having been suspended, but do you have any expectations in terms of which of those might stay, which of those might leave? Any any tidbits or rumours you can let us into? What sort of clubs might be in for them? It's really hard to say now because um, I think I, I had expected Norwich to sell at least one or two of them, whether they stayed up or not. Um, so, But I, I think that's a Norwich expectation and I don't know if they're... Um, and I know that Crystal Palace like the looks of Jamal Lewis. I know that Tottenham have, have had quite a long-term interest in, in Max Ahrens. Um, and uh, Ben Gonfrey seems to be linked with pretty much everyone in the top six. So uh, I think it, it's a really difficult to call because it, it will depend on the club and how much they can put forward. I think Norwich have really set expectations and Stuart Webber is a... He, make sure he gets top dollar which again is such an interesting question given we don't know what football is going to look like on the other side of the suspension because uh, you know clubs built on a on a model like Norwich's we're not sure how that's going to work and you've then got to deal with the players own expectations of where they're playing um it's interesting that Norwich um signed Sam McCallum from Coventry in January who's a young talented left back um he went back to Coventry spent the rest of the season on loan there but I saw that as a as a potential for it doesn't matter if we sell Jamal because we've got Sam coming through uh, and likewise Sam Byram who um, you know has 
spent a lot this season playing at left back while Jamal kind of lost a bit of form. Um, he is a natural replacement at right back for Max if he went. So um, Norwich are probably covered to the point where they feel like they've got options should either of them go, which again, given that they don't actually have to sell, what they're looking at is, you know, whether someone has outgrown them. Um, it you know gives them options and, and probably does leave them with the power in their hands to decide who, when and for how much. How have they approached uh, Michael Bailey, the, the central midfield uh, combination in the Premier League this season? I remember that one of the sort of strange quirks of them last season was mostly through injury. They had sort of five central midfield players, McLean, Treble, Leitner, Vrancic, Tete, and there was a lot of chopping and changing throughout that campaign. Uh, has that been a bit more of a settled position in the Premier League? How have they approached it? Playing in mostly a, a sort of a 4-2-3-1 sort of variance. Those, the, the, the three and the two are... Norwich are stacked with midfielders. They've got loads of them and Farker has, has happily sort of chopped and changed them where needed. And in the championship, they could kind of afford to play two slightly deeper midfielders who perhaps weren't actually <laughs> natural defenders because it was all about keeping hold of the ball and, and using it and, and possession was the best form of defence. Obviously, that's hugely different in the Premier League. And I know they spent a lot of time in pre-season trying to prepare for that, but they... I can sit here and say how good Alex Tetty's been given his age and the sort of renaissance in his fitness. And that's wonderful. I'm a huge Alex Tetty fan. I think he's a wonderful man. <laughs> but it does kind of raise the question that that is the one area where I felt they did need to strengthen. Ibrahim Amadou should really have given them an extra athleticism. And so then you're kind of playing players who's, who have really good qualities, but you kind of want to mould them into one player so that they can actually perform at Premier League level. That's what it's felt like. Tom Tom Tribal's um, can be really good on the ball and 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 is is good in terms of reading the game. But then his defensive positions, he can get caught at, caught on the ball and sometimes doesn't sense danger necessarily as well as he should. Um, Kenny McLean has great energy, but then I feel like he hasn't done enough with the ball at times. Um, Moritz Leitner had a spell in the game and uh, in in the season of of being really effective and and using the ball. But then as soon as the opposition, and I'm thinking post-Man City, which we might well touch on, but as soon as the opposition kind of read what was happening, he kind of got squeezed out of being able to use the ball in better areas. And and then he just became a metronome that kind of just sent Norwich round in circles and became completely redundant in giving them any kind of progression. And so he then got shipped out. And I think it's... um, it's been it's been an issue because I, th- I think they've been trying to find the best formula for that and it hasn't really worked. And I think that's probably because they just didn't have someone with a bit more quality to help Daniel's side do what they were doing, but just slightly better. Um, and I think that's that's probably where that's come undone. And the real attacking quality, Michael Cox, it comes in front of that midfield too, uh, as Michael has alluded to there, that the real stars of the Premier League campaign and flying onto the radars of anyone who wasn't following them last season, starting with Emi Buendia, uh, a really, really interesting player, someone I know that you're uh, particularly interested in. Yeah, I mean, I think he's been a, a wonderful addition to the Premier League. I think his... Uh... His assisting and his through ball and his ability to receive the ball between the lines has just been obvious to anyone, whether they watch the highlights or whether they, or whether they watch the, the full games. I mean, I think they were very canny at uh, nailing Buendia down to, I think, a five-year contract at the start of the season because obviously there's been so much interest in him. I don't think we can talk about him without mentioning the fact that he, he hasn't scored all season. I think I'm right in saying he's the player in the Premier League who's taken the most shots without scoring. Um but I think he's, you know, he's more than compensated for that with his with his intelligence of movement and just his ability to pick a pass, I think, is has worked really well in this Norwich side at times. So yeah, he's been, I think, one of the stars of the Premier League season, aside from, you know, the obvious the obvious names. If you take out maybe Liverpool City and Leicester, um, then you're looking at Wendy as one of the best playmakers in the league this season. And if you'd only watched the Canaries this season, Michael Bailey, you, you would have thought that Todd Cantwell must have been instrumental in that championship champions campaign last season but he was more or less uh, sort of first off the bench in 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 a wide role what have you made of of his bursting onto the scene this season I mean and and, and tell us a bit more about him as a player it strikes me that if Buendia is 
uh, a creator who might lack a bit of goal threat. That seems to be uh, some slack that Cantwell hasn't had too much trouble picking up. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. Um, he's I think he's got six goals, but only made two. Um, and I think Timo Bookie's created three of those for him. He, he he did very very well in getting in good areas. And actually, you can see from the goal he scored up at Everton. Um, I think that was a really cool finish and, and he made the point of how much he'd been working on that. And I think that sums up Todd a lot. He he is he is talented. He's got fantastic feet. But all through his year, all through his development, he's had to he's had people telling him he's too small or he's too soft or he's too weak or this, that and the other. And he's 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 fiercely competitive and fiercely driven. And I think that's that's what's got him to where to where he is now when Norwich sold James Madison I know he went knocking on Daniel Varka's door and said don't don't worry about that I'll fill his boots and I think Daniel was like yeah don't don't worry about it Todd off you go <laughs> um but he didn't he didn't forget that Todd and he you're right I mean it surprised me he made 26 appearances last season because I, I kind of thought it was fewer than that um but but there weren't many that, I think there were 18 starts and he wasn't really a, a hugely influential player I mean in, in amongst the squad but from the moment he came back in pre-season this season, he just looked at a different player. He really shone in pre-season. So I hate pre-season. I try not to judge anything on it. But what you do is you sort of take you take note of it and then go, OK, well, let's see what happens when the, when the actual action starts. And again, at Anfield, he linked the play brilliantly. He works really hard, even when he, he has lost the ball in key areas this season. But he, he does, if he can, he, he works hard and, and, and tracks back and tries to win it back. And he does, as you say, he does have that sort of goal threat that maybe Emmy is lacking. And I think he does have the temperament and work rate that Daniel Farker would probably criticise Emmy for at times as well. So he it was going to be a big second half of the season for, for Todd. I think he just needed to back up what he'd done in the first half of the season. But I think it's it's great to have seen what Todd's done and 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 surprising because it, it kind of took took us all by surprise, really, those who have followed the club every week. And what about the man, Michael Cox, who, who has the fairly large responsibility of, of scoring a large percentage of Norwich's goals? That is Pookie, of course, at 29 league goals in the championship last season, 11 in 28 uh, in this campaign. What have you made of, of his season? I can imagine he was one of the players you'd heard quite a lot about and were uh, interested to see how how his game would translate to Premier League level. That's always a big question with championship goal scorers. I must admit he was a player I got slightly wrong in the sense I thought he was basically just a goal scorer, almost a classic number nine. But when I've seen Norwich live and, and when I've watched their matches on TV, I've been really impressed by his all-round game. And actually, I think I've only covered one a Norwich game this season, actually writing about them. It was a game where Michael was away for the uh, the trip down to Brighton uh, before Christmas, which Norwich lost 2-0. But I thought Pookie was actually maybe the man of the match, not necessarily, or certainly not for his goal scoring that game because he didn't score, obviously. But for his all-round link play, um, I actually came away from that game thinking, you know, maybe this was a time when Norwich weren't getting a, a great deal from Cantwell and Buendia. Maybe actually Pookie could be suited to a slightly deeper role. I think the obvious question then is whether Norwich have anyone quite good enough to lead the line and maybe they don't but yeah I mean Pookie is is a really good around player his touch on the ball his ability to to just have a little trick or a little flick away from opposition defenders to give himself half a yard of space has been you know as much as his goal scoring the thing that's really impressed me hard to know what to do in January Michael Bailey when you're at the bottom of the Premier League how how much to do I suppose to try and uh, and get a few extra points in the second half of the campaign and, and achieve safety. That There were a few January additions. You mentioned McCallum, who, who joined from Coventry, the young left wing back. He went back to Cov uh, to finish the season on loan there. What about the other additions? Uh, I'm looking at the names Rupp and Duda, and I'd like to know more about their impact. Andre Duda joined from um, Hertha Berlin. I think it was. God, it feels like ages ago now. Um, on loan. And um, I think... You, Daniel Farker really, really, really likes him. I think you could see there were some really good touches, and he did make a positive impact when he certainly on his debut. And you could you could see there was um, like an increase in, in quality in the number ten role, which I think Norwich had like they hadn't scored from the number ten role, which I think Daniel felt was a key thing. And just talking about Timu there, you know, he had a lot of support from the three behind him in the championship last year, but those goals completely dried up this year. And that just whacked a whole load of extra burden on on, um, on Timu. So I think 
Andre was kind of brought in to maybe help that out a little bit. Um, hasn't scored. Uh, he, he, but for Steve Cook's handball, he would have scored against Bournemouth. Um, and then after that, missed a couple of chances and started drifting in and out of games quite a lot. Which again, you, you know, it's one thing coming in with a sort of um, ability to add a, a freshness and a, a bit of extra impetus to a squad, but when the results are still a bit stodgy and, and you're not really improving, I think it can then get can then get quite tricky. Um, but I, I, I like him. I, I think if you know, I don't think there's any particular um, likelihood of him staying beyond his loan spell. I think it was just something to keep ticking over for now. Uh, Lucas Rupp joined from Hoffenheim on um, on a, a permanent deal for a, for two three years, and um, had a big injury. So I think there's an element of him trying to prove what level he's at after after that. Um, I, I I see a player who is playing in the Premier League, but I don't know if he's got what enough to to really impact games at this level. It might be you know once you get this season out of the way and it's a full preseason and away you go you might see a, a, a an improvement in him but it sort of felt a bit like a a fill gap you know it's like a stop gap or just a bit of filler in the team and, and I'm surprised he's featured as much if I'm if I'm honest I think Daniel sees him as someone who gives him a bit more solidity but I don't know if that was really um how it was playing out and I suppose he's a player who in the championship would probably be a cut above but um it's hard to sort of yeah you know, I think Norwich's run just before the January transfer window where they've just picked up no points and ended up getting cut adrift. I think that killed any hope of bringing in some players that, you know, would really, really make an impact. They have lost 18 of their 29 Premier League games. We're going to get into some of the key issues uh, in just a second, but uh, a final reminder of, uh, well, the, presumably the happiest day of the season so far out of their five Premier League wins. Uh, one of them really does stand out with, uh, an away win at Everton coming highly commended. Uh, it has to be that 3-2 win against Manchester City back in September. How, how on earth did they manage to beat uh, last season's champions, Manchester City? Yeah, um, great question. I think at the, when, the, when the game, um, when, it, when it played out, Norwich had had a pretty decent start to the season. And I think there was a genuine hope that look at the way we're playing, look at how we're doing this. Um, this is great. The manager, the players have risen to what we hoped they would do. They were champions last year. They're now playing in the Premier League, which is what suits their game. This is great. This is brilliant. Um, look at the teams we're beating and everyone's playing well, etc. And they had an injury crisis as well, by the way. I think they had eight players out for that game. Um, and so I think on that particular occasion, Norwich sat in. They were incredibly focused, incredibly, the, the way they concentrated um, in terms of their defending, um, they played with such confidence getting out of Manchester City's press and they were incredibly clinical on the counter-attack. I think now on reflection as well, Manchester City defensively were awful and I think they also played into Norwich's hands in terms of just allowing them so much space to then counter and and actually they weren't particularly good going forward that day either. And I think on on the, in the actual circumstances, you, you, you give Norwich huge, huge credit, but I think... You, you don't then appreciate and probably hope it's not more of a one-off <laughs> occurrence. And I think um, champ Premier League teams are incredibly savvy. They have analysts who were never going to take Norwich lightly from that point on. And I honestly believe the next game was Burnley away and Burnley absolutely hammered Norwich for the first 20 minutes. They were 2-0 up and the game was over. And I think, I think at that point in, in those two games, you had no one was going to take Norwich lightly anymore and B, Burnley had shown how you could take them apart and Norwich have not really dealt with being put under the cosh very well in terms of being really pressured on in possession, which is what they want to do as well. They want to be in a possession under a high press and a really energetic press. Norwich have tended to give the ball away in bad areas and I think that kind of then gave a blueprint and I, I think Norwich were, were, they really struggled to pick up any meaningful points over the, you know, a, a good run of games after that win. Plus there's the, psych, the psychological effort. I know they got a lot of interview requests. It was suddenly they were in the spotlight and everyone wanted a piece of them and I don't think any of them had been in that situation before and we talk about them being a young squad I think they they got unpicked a bit really and that's the only thing you can you can only really realize that with hindsight. Coxie in terms of 
Norwich's struggles this season. Uh, how do you sort of pick through their vulnerabilities? What stood out most to you? The reason why, uh, despite all the positive things about the way this squad has been built and a, um, a, a brave style of play, that ultimately this is a team that's picked up 21 points from 29 games. What stands out for you in, in a more negative sense? Yeah, it's interesting what Michael says there about you know, the players having to cope with the limelight and the media attention because I thought after a positive start, there was a bit of an issue with, I mean, more than anything else with, with players just giving the ball away really cheaply in time where there were just so many cheap concessions that, that resulted in chances for the opposition. I remember Cantwell having a, a particularly poor game uh, against Palace where he was conceding the ball all the time. When Deer give away in, in the game against Watford, I think on a Friday night, which felt like it was, uh, you know, quite a, a damning result for Norwich. But it's been frustrating, you know, as I mentioned at the top, whenever you see them against the top side, they often play really well. I mean, I remember that early game against Chelsea where they lost 3-2 to quite a late, really good Tammy Abraham goal. The recent visit of of Liverpool, they held out for about 80 minutes, I think, and then a really good Mane goal was the thing that separated them. But then when they've been up against, you know, a side that really they're competing against for, for survival, I mean, they lost 5-1 at home to Villa. I mean, and their goal came really late as well, with the exception of that 1-0 win over Bournemouth that Michael mentioned with uh, the slightly bizarre Steve Cook handball. Um, I haven't picked up too many points in the game we all like, or the games we all like to call, you know, relegation six pointers. Can you expound on that, Michael Bailey? Those games against teams down at the at the bottom around them is it is it mostly a defensive issue that they have? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's there's a lot of factors in it, um, but there's certainly a clutch of games where I just, I still shake my head. I think that the Villa game, the Villa game at Carrow Road, yeah, Norwich lost five one, and I think in the build up to that game. And was probably the the peak of their injury issues. The only fit centre half was Ben Godfrey, and he had basically needed a hernia operation for three games. He just wasn't fit. And I think I I know a couple of people I spoke to at the club, and even they were looking around, going into the Villa game, looking at the squad and and who was left, and and the the, the physical condition of them, and just thinking. I don't even know if we've got a chance. So I think there was a lot of mitigation around that around that game, particularly. But then you know they go to Villa Park on Boxing Day. They're excellent, and yet they still end up losing one nil, um, which is a you know some real a real killer of a game. And I think um, I think again, it's Sheffield United at Carrow Road. Norwich were one nil up at half time. They had they had a run of being one nil up at half time, and they either went on to so for example in that run, I think they ended up they were one nil up at half time. They ended up drawing two two with Arsenal. Yeah, they lost 2-1 to Sheffield United and Sheffield United only needed to be good for the first six minutes of the second half, scored twice and did all the good work and then and then that was it. And um, they, they and I guess this just happens in the same way that you end up scoring late goals when you're flying in the championship. When you end up, you end up in the Premier League struggling, it seems that up, your opposition can score with relative ease and, and you're spending 89 minutes just trying to get one, trying to take one of your chances. Um, and and uh, so I, as both teams have just found a way or too often and, and Norwich haven't really mixed things up. What you get from minute one tends to be what you're still getting come minute 89, which can be a strength. But I think at this level, teams are much more dynamic in what they're doing and, and Norwich haven't really been that dynamic in terms of altering their game plan mid-game or maybe from what it was at the start, making substitutions that really alter the outcome. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Just uh, stats-wise, just six goals in away games this season. I think it's 15 away games in the Premier League and only six scored. That's a, a clear issue. I, I mean, I don't want to bang on about the, the defence. I, I, I kind of brought it up because you can't really pick holes when someone wins a title. But it's interesting, and I was doing some research before the pod, that they conceded 57 goals in 46 games while winning the championship last season. Uh, and that's 12 goals more than any other championship champion in the last decade. So that was always something that it would have been ideal to improve on. It doesn't feel like they were quite able to do that to the sa to, to, to well to the greatest extent. Uh, Michael Bailey, just lastly, if Norwich do end up relegated and of course we don't know what will come uh, do you think do you believe that they'd be in, in decent shape to attack the championship there's not a great record of relegated Premier League teams bouncing straight back up it's so tough I mean Norwich have done it they did it in 2015 but they needed a managerial change and the playoffs 
Um, and I, I mean, it's the only thing Norwich can can do is try and build a situation where it's easier to, you know, where they're prepared to bounce back. That's the only way you can deal with relegation. But it's so hard. I mean, you, you're relying on players say, oh, you know, it'll be OK because Moritz Leitner and Marco Stiepelman have done it in the championship and they're still around. But, you know, they're not the same player that they were the first time around. They've, you know, got to the Premier League and either not featured or not been used or not felt good enough. So, you know, you're dealing with a completely different mindset. Um, the, the pressure as well will be completely different at the start of of that season if if and as and when it happens so um i mean they're in as good a place as they they can be i think at that point who they sell and who they bring in and how they alter that dynamic and just give a bit of freshness so there isn't much of a hangover from this year i think that will be really important but it it's 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 so difficult to 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 achieve um and there's no real there's no real shortcut to it absolutely Uh, last word from you coxie we've been through hopefully uh, as many aspects of Norwich and their style of play and their individual players and the manager uh, as possible and keep coming back to this um, brave approach that has ultimately been uh, not particularly effective at Premier League level but from what you've said about Norwich uh, it feels like you've uh, enjoyed their return to the Premier League even if it might only be for one season this time. Yeah I really have and uh, of course we don't know what the the situation is with the season when it's going to get going again but they've shown that at home they can give anyone a good game and you look at the the fixtures they have remaining I mean Southampton at home, Everton uh, at home, Brighton, West Ham, Burnley these are all either beatable sides or you know sides who who maybe come the end of the season won't be fighting for much might be in mid-table and might have their their foot off the gas although I'm not sure we can use the phrase on the beach because we don't quite know when the uh, summer break is going to be but uh, yeah the point stands they have got a a really decent side they can pick up points at home Uh, and to reiterate what I said at the top you know I think this Premier League has has really been about the strength and depth and how you can go really far down the table and uh, and still find great players and and very well organized sides and yeah it's uh, it's more than a backhanded compliment I know but if this Norwich side does finish bottom, they'll be by far the best team I've ever seen to finish bottom of the Premier League. Strong words. Well, thank you to the two Michaels. I've really struggled with being able to differentiate between <laughs> you throughout this podcast. Something that I will need to go away and work on in the future. But it's been brilliant to have you both on to talk about Norwich City. And thank you for listening as well. If you would like to read more about this Norwich side, of course, Michael Bailey's been covering them all season for The Athletic and plenty of good things recently as well, despite the suspension of football. A brilliant piece reminiscing with Dean Ashton, one of Norwich's greatest uh, strikers, certainly in the modern era. And Michael Cox has finally finished a wonderful series on shirt numbers. So go and check out which novelty numbers have been used uh, to an interesting extent across football history. Uh, Thank you both for joining me and join us again next week on this Zonal Marking podcast, a new topic, a new discussion to be had, and we can't wait for it.